0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you
1: grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information visit us at UpperRoom.ca In 1 Samuel 15, 22-29 it says,
0: but Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said unto him, I will not go back with you. I have rejected the wor- You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, he caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being, that he should change his mind. This is the Word of God.
1: You know when our children are young, parents do all the work while the kids eat, sleep and play, have fun. Today my son's doing that even though he's much older while I'm here working for him. But seriously, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning and to kick off your old school series. I want you to take a minute to think about something right now. Think about someone in any, fear, any sphere of life who began well, but it kind of ended pretty badly or disastrously. It could be in any dimensional life, sports, the Christian life, what have you. And as you think of that individual or that person, or maybe you just know about them, ask yourself this question, what one or two factors might have contributed to take a good beginning and end miserably? And if you don't know anyone like that, just think of a hypothetical situation. What are one or two factors that could take a good beginning and turn them into a bad ending? Just talk about that for a minute quickly. Okay, now if I to pick a, put a blackboard in here and ask you to list off all the possible causes you've thought about, would probably get as many people, as many uh, items on the list as there are people. And what was the cause in one particular situation may not apply to another situation. But this morning as, you, as we kick off our old school series, I want to tell you the story of an Old Testament character named Saul. He was Israel's first king. and He was a man who had a great beginning and ended up disastrously. And as we kind of unpack the details, we will find to our surprise how many dimensions of that actually have widespread application to our lives as well. His story actually covers 22 chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 31, so we're obviously not going to read most of it. I'm just going to be reading a few verses as I tell you the story. If you read chapters 9 and 10, you'll find that this man was a man of tremendously promising beginnings Uh, to begin with he was a man who was physically impressive Uh, he was a humble man he was reluctant for the limelight he had genuine experiences with the holy spirit he was a man who was meek and meekness is the character quality that has to do with controlling anger and he was also very merciful towards people who didn't like him now let's kind of fast forward the story from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 16 And we see the beginning of a terrible downward spiral. To begin with, there was an influence of an evil spirit in his life. Then anger and jealousy began to take a foothold of him. He had increasing influences of evil in his life. There were six attempted murders on the life of his son's best friend, a man by the name of David, who was going to become king later. He even turned to witchcraft that was completely forbidden in the Old Testament. And finally, he committed suicide. So here's the question. What takes such an amazing beginning and turns it into an absolutely horrible ending? We wanna come back now and turn the video back to those crucial five chapters from chapter 11 to chapter 15, where there's one fatal flaw that this man has, one fatal flaw that manifests itself in three different directions. Now in the beginning of the story, immediately after the prophet Samuel told Saul to his surprise that he was going to be Israel's next king, he told him to go to Gilgal, a place of worship, and said, wait there until I come and offer the sacrifice. And this is what we read, 1 Samuel 13, 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. The Philistine army was about to attack. So he said Saul said bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings and Saul offered up the burnt offering a king was never allowed to do what a priest's job was just as he finished making the offering Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him what have you done asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. His troops were scattering. He had a job to do, which was to get on with the task of winning the battle. And Samuel wasn't there yet. This worship thing was holding up his real agenda and so he felt an inward compulsion. There's that first flaw. I call it impatient worship. Let's get worship over with so we can get on to the things that really matter. For this he was going to pay a really heavy price and this is what Samuel said when he showed up. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have expected, Saul, if I had made that mistake, I would have expected to react with remorse, with regret, Maybe even with brokenhearted repentance. I probably would have said, I would like to think, I would have said something like this to Samuel. Samuel, yeah, I was crazy. I don't know what I was doing. I'm so sorry. I blew it so completely at the beginning. Will you please have mercy on me? Give me a second chance. Let me start again, right? Something like that, we would like to think we would have done. Look at how he actually responded. You know what it says? He just counted the number of men. Because that was his agenda. From the very beginning, his only goal was the troops are scattering, my men are leaving me. I have to win this battle. And so long as my agenda is accomplished, I don't even care that I've lost the kingdom. Do you know his, good, his great beginning lasted seven days? Any one of us can be impressive for seven days. He had just been told that the kingdom was gone and all he could think about was, did I accomplish my agenda? That's a classic profile of a driven person. Now, what does that look like today? Well, I don't have any troops. We don't fight battles. My troops are not scattering. But I tell you this, every morning when I get up, I have something called a to-do list. It's on here. And it never gets done. I wake up, and immediately I know the relentless pressure of all the things that I... By the way, I've retired, and it hasn't changed it one bit. (laughs) It, It feels like the troops are scattering. And I've got to do something about it. And that doesn't even take into account all the unpredictable, unanticipated things that will show up during the day. And so immediately, immediately, there's a choice that is set before me. Am I going to be patient in my, worship, my daily worship of Jesus or not? Or am I just going to see this as something to get it over with so I can get on to my agenda and really get that done? What kind of convictions are going to be strong enough to enable us in the face of that relentless pressure of the things that have to get done every day to say, no, I will down tools and I will be patient in my worship of Jesus this morning. What conviction does that? I mean, there are many, but there's one that has helped me more than any other. Psalm 84, you know, it says, How lovely are your dwelling places. My soul longs for the courts of my God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. But he goes on to say that, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked because a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Well, what does that statement mean? It basically tells us that God is outside of time. God inhabits eternity. God is outside of time. And the only way, The only way we will ever conquer the tyranny of time in our lives, or the pressure of time, is to let eternity touch time every day. See, that's what happens. When we down tools and say, let the troops scatter, I will be patient in my worship of Jesus this morning. What's going on? There's a time miracle that takes place because God is outside of time. But the miracle is not that we will get the time back. God will not lengthen our days. You spend an hour in his presence, you've got one hour left to do all your work. That arithmetic will not change. You know what changes though? What changes is the quality of the person who lives the remaining hours of the day. Something happens to us when we let eternity touch time. We, the people who are going out into the rest of the day, have changed. And the way we do that work changes. I've had this experience in many, many different ways. The miracle of eternity touching time. As I said, I always have the same number of hours left. Some, some weeks I've seen sermons come out come together much, much faster. I've had appointments that get canceled. Or meetings that I'd allowed four hours to get finished in an hour. Everything is harmonious and smooth. And you know, it doesn't just apply to all the big things like preaching sermons and conducting church business. It can happen in the kitchen too. I remember one time, uh, Friday evenings is periodically, not every Friday, but often we would have hospitality in our church and we'd have people come over that night. And that Friday is always a much busier day for Sham than they were for many other days. And I'd clear up my schedule a bit to get home about an hour or two hours early so I can help her with getting the dishes ready and stuff like that. And those mornings, her troops are scattering. <laughs> She's got extra stuff to get done. And so there's immediate temptation and to skip. Oh, God understands. He, I know he does, but that's not the point. So one Friday she told me, she said, honey, you need to hear what happened today. The previous day, Thursday, we had a small group in our home and I had explained to them some of these principles that I'm talking about, about eternity touching time. So she said, when I got up that morning and I had this pressure to kind of skip my time alone with God, I remembered and decided to test God and let eternity touch time. So she said, I just unhurriedly took my time. She said, the most amazing thing happened. She said, later on in the afternoon, I was ironing a tablecloth when well, the dish that I was planning to make that day, uh, there popped into my head a completely different way of making that dish. She said, by the end of the day, I had everything finished 45 minutes earlier than I ever get things done on a Friday. So you see, it doesn't matter whether it's preparing a sermon or whether it's getting dishes ready. It has to do with this principle of allowing eternity to touch time. So can I pause for a minute and ask you to think, where is my worship impatient? What do I, what do I need to do to shift from impatience to patience because you're like me. Every day you have a to-do list and it is relentless. The pressure is the same. So let's just pause for a minute. You ask ask the Lord to show you. What do I need to do to move from impatience to patience in my worship in the face of the pressure of troops that are scattering every day for me? Well, as we go back to his story, we will find that this impatience becomes a settled habit in Saul's life. And so he wants to win this battle, so he makes another rash decision. Impatience is very closely connected to rashness, by the way. And he said, none of the soldiers are allowed to eat anything until my agenda is accomplished. We're going to win this battle, so no one can eat anything. And as a result of that rash decision, impatient decision, agenda-driven decision, he set up his soldiers a very massive violation of god's commandment because after the victory it says in chapter 14 they the soldiers pounced on the plunder and taking sheep cattle and calves they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood something that was expressly forbidden by god eating meat with the blood in it they, they were set up because of saul's rashness. now saul finds out about this and we read that he builds an altar then saul built an altar to the lord it was the first time he had done this <laughs> We think it's the first quiet moment in a man's life. But unfortunately, like everything else, it was just skin deep. Because we read on, and it says this, the next verse, let us go, Saul says, he builds the altar, and he says, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us leave, not leave one of them alive, still agenda driven. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God. Do you get the story? He built an altar, but forgot to pray. You know what that's called? That's called utilitarian worship. Utilitarian worship is a tip of the hat to God while maintaining control yourself. You build the altar. Oh yeah, God's important in my life. Maybe I need to pray because the pastor says so. But my agenda is still what drives me. So the priest says pray. So now he's no choice but to pray, right? After all, the priest has told him to pray. You built an altar, Saul, why don't you pray? And says, Saul, Saul prays. Shall I go down out of the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hands? But God did not answer him that day. Impatient, utilitarian worship doesn't break through to the heart of God. What does that look like for us today? What, What shape does utilitarian worship take in our lives today? A tip of the hat to God while maintaining control in our lives the first thing that came to my mind was what I'd call the things go better with coke mentality. Remember the old coke commercial? Things go better with coke. We think things go better with prayer. So maybe I'll pray. I'll pray, then my day will go more smoothly. Well, that's a totally utilitarian approach to prayer and worship. Uh, like, uh, like you guys, we've had solemn assemblies in our church. We our 25th year this coming year. And in 2010, after the end of solemn assembly, on the Friday night, Pastor Nancy Scott, who was a pastor of women's ministries in our church, began to feel a little bit ill. By Saturday, she was really sick. By Sunday, she was in hospital. And by Tuesday, she had gone home to be with the Lord. So did a week of worship make things go smoothly? Or did the week of worship get us ready to respond when things exploded in our face? What is God's real agenda? We don't, we don't take patient time to worship God so that everything will go smoothly in our work. and It may. And it often does. But that's not the point. It may be to prepare us to encounter life that is not smooth, that is difficult. You know why? Because he's transforming us. Eternity touches time not only under the pressure of things that have to be done, but also preparing us through a relationship to get ready for the difficulties of life. So that's one way in which utilitarian worship works. A second way has to do with the issue of seeing prayer as guidance. I pray because I need some guidance from God. Now you might say, just a minute, what's wrong with that? are we supposed to be looking to God for guidance? Of course. In fact, humbly seeking God for wisdom and acknowledging that you and I are not wise is actually an act of worship. And that's okay. But guidance wrenched out from the context of a relationship becomes utilitarian. Let me think of marriage for a minute. Can you imagine a husband and a wife meeting every morning 7 o'clock in the morning, that's that appointed time to get together, and each one exchanges a to-do list. Honey, I want you to do all these things today. And you get that list from your wife, and you get that list from your husband, and then you spend the rest of the day doing those, all those things amazingly. And then you do that every day. It may make for a very efficient household, but nobody in their right mind would call it marriage. Because marriage is not about just listening to what the other person wants you to do. Marriage has to do with the development of a heart-to-heart relationship or the development of intimacy, and you've learned that here in many times that you've been taught about marriage. And in the context of that intimacy, you complete one another so that together you accomplish God's agenda for this world by playing your part in God's redemptive plan. Now, in the context of that kind of a heart-to-heart relationship, to-do lists are important. And as every husband knows, you better do what your wife wants you to do, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, yeah, we do exchange to-do lists, but they are set in the larger context of a relationship. So it is when it comes to looking to God for guidance, of course we want God to give us guidance. But if that's all your worship is of God, it becomes utilitarian. The fundamental purpose for which God wants us to be patient in our worship is that we develop a heart-to-heart relationship and that we can express the kind of love that we just expressed to Jesus and actually mean it from the depths of our heart and get to that point. In that context, By all means, we can ask for guidance. So I don't know which of these two dimensions of utilitarian worship might be affecting your life. The things go better with coke mentality? The guidance wrenched outside of a heart-to-heart relationship? So take a few moments to think about that. Just as impatient worship can creep in, how can worship become utilitarian? Think about that for a minute. Well, the story is gradually reaching a climax. Saul, Samuel gives Saul one more assignment. The Amalekites were the long-standing enemies of Israel. Way back from the time of Moses, when they were in the wilderness, the Amalekites would raid them and pick off the weakest, the women, the older people, the children, and kill them. And so Saul was given this, this charge to completely destroy the Amalekites, including all the animals and everything like that. What did Saul do? He, he obeyed, but not quite. He kept all the healthy, sleek, fat animals, the cows and the sheep. And so as he comes back, of course, they hear the bleeding of the sheep. And Samuel confronts him and says, why did you not obey me? Here's what Saul says. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. If I can paraphrase Saul, he said something like that. He said, come on Samuel, I know you told me to kill all these animals, but it didn't make any sense to me. Look at that fat, juicy sheep that I brought back for you. Look at this cow. It's absolutely perfect, not a flaw in it. And didn't God tell us to sacrifice perfect animals to him? I mean, these are wonderful instruments of worship. Didn't make any sense to me what you said. And when God's instructions didn't make sense, Samuel, Saul changed them into into something that made sense to him. What was going on here? What what flaw in worship was at work here? You're going to have to dig below the surface a little bit to find out this one. And as you keep reading the story, here are some things that come to mind. So, Samuel, in the text that the young gal read for us, as a result of this disobedience, Samuel said, The kingdom is gone. The kingdom is gone from you. Even now, it's been given to somebody else. How did Saul respond? Chapter 15 verse 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Oh, you say, finally Saul's getting it right. Uh, What more can you ask for somebody who has blown it big time to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Come back with me so I can worship the Lord. Finally, I want to get worship right. At least that's what it sounds like, right? But just like everything else in Saul's case, if you dig below the surface, you find that's not what's going on at all. What was really going on? A few verses before that, we read these. Early in the morning, that same morning when Samuel was going to confront Saul, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, and notice this, folks, he has set up a monument in his own honor. Self-worship. Im- impatient worship and utilitarian worship will eventually degenerate into self-worship. See, we're all creatures have been made to worship. And if we do not worship God, we will worship something else on ourselves. And now, now when you understand the real reason behind his request, remember he said, come back with me that I may worship the Lord. He, few verses later, he says this again. Saul said, I have sinned, but please Honor me before the elders of my people. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Now you see what he really wanted. He said, Samuel, you got to come back with me to let me worship before my elders so I will look good before them. Was he interested in worshiping God? Image maintenance becomes the first preoccupation of self-worship. He was concerned about maintaining a right image before the elders. You know, once we become concerned about our image before people, then we start fearing people. That's the next thing that happens. When Samuel asked Saul, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Look at chapter 15, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Fear of human beings is not very far off when image maintenance becomes important. Whether it's in the family, whether it's in church, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in society, the more your focus is on maintaining an image, the more you're going to be afraid of the people that you're maintaining the image before. Os Guinness once tells the story of sitting at a, at a breakfast table across from a pastor of a large megachurch. And this pastor confessed to him, every Sunday when I get up to preach, he said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I'm only one or two sermons away from losing all these people to the church down the road. And Guinness says, we are developing a leadership that has become codependent on its followership. We are developing a leadership that has become codependent on its followership. That's what happens, image maintenance, fear of man. And then one more thing, when Samuel says to Saul, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? It's exactly the same word that was used of the hungry soldiers earlier on, pouncing on the animals and eating the meat with the blood. This is instant gratification. You know what happens? When your focus, when when worship has become impatient, when worship has become utilitarian, and eventually the focus turns on self-worship, on image maintenance and the fear of man, your soul starts shriveling up on the inside. And you know what happens? You have to fill that emptiness of your soul with instant gratification. For some people, it is pornography and those kinds of things, a quick emotional hit. For others, it's shopping sprees. For somebody else, it may be vacations. Something or the other that will satisfy me and give me a quick hit for the moment. That's the emptiness that's being driven within. So can I pause one more time? Where had your worship become impatient? Where had your worship become utilitarian? And where has it degenerated into self-focus? Where has your focus become more on maintaining your image Fear of the people who might not think of you that way and where instant gratification often attempt is an attempt to satisfy a hollow emptiness inside that only true worship can give. One quick observation with that, I'm finished. This story of Saul and his downward spiral, this one fatal flaw of impatient worship, utilitarian worship that led to self-worship, that took a great beginning and made it into a horrible ending, is woven together with the story of another man, King David. His spiral was going upward. Now, at first sight, this should surprise us because David wasn't a perfect man. If you read the story of David in 2 Samuel, you'll find that David was guilty of the sins of adultery and murder. Now come on, can we stack those two up, folks? Impatience on the one side and adultery on the other side. The the second one will get you excommunicated from church. The first one nobody bothers about. So what's the matter? Has our God gone crazy or what? Has he kind of lost his moral bearings that David, a man who committed adultery and murder is a man after God's own heart and Saul just for impatience and utilitarian is consigned to this? Now we've got to look closer to the surface. Just like in Saul's case when you look below the surface you find the superficiality giving, giving way to the hollowness but David is the exact opposite. No, God did not take David's sin casually. David's whole family was cursed from that time on with the same kind of sins, murder and sexual sins. The the people of Israel went on a downward spiral and the kingdom never recovered. So David paid a massive price for his sin. But, But when it came to the heart of worship, David's heart was a completely different heart. Because when Nathan confronted him and said, you are the man who has sinned, David was broken. Six days and nights he was fasting and he prayed. The one thing that David could not stand was to be separated from God. His worship was always patient, never utilitarian, because he longed after God with his whole heart. This is how he described it. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and seek him in his temple. Do you see anything utilitarian here? Do you see anything impatient here? Do you see anything of self-worship here? That was the difference. That's what made all the difference. God's not calling us to perfection, but he's calling us to this. I want to leave you with an image. What do you think is the difference between a balloon and a golf ball? Hey kids, any kids, anybody know what's the difference between a balloon and a golf ball? What do you think? Size? Oh, that's size. Well, I just made one bigger, okay? What if they were the same size? Anything else? Anybody else? What do you think is the difference between a golf ball? A balloon's lighter. And why do you think it's lighter? What's inside the balloon? Yeah? Yeah, A balloon's full of air and a golf ball is full of plastic or hard rubber as it is. And they're right. You know, a balloon is nice and smooth on the outside, but you prick it with a pin and it's gone. The inside is hollow. Everything looks nice on the outside, but the inside's hollow. Golf ball, it's pockmarked with all kinds of little holes on the outside. Try put a pin through it because the center is rock solid. That's the contrast for What kind of a life do we want to live? A life that is metaf- for which a balloon is a metaphor? Impatient, utilitarian, and rationalistic worship? Or golf balls? All kinds of problems, imperfections at the surface, but the center is rock hard. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for stories that serve like a surgeon's knife. They penetrate, they cut, they expose, but all for the purpose of healing and each one of us individually and together as a congregation. Confess all those times in our life when our worship has been impatient, utilitarian, and for all of those times when really it's self that we've been focused on all along. Grant us the heart of a David. Thank you for your abundant grace that is patient with us. In Jesus' name.